Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our latest podcast episode, which is part of a special series that the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy is recording in cooperation with the U.S. Embassy here in Vienna, Austria. My name is Michael Sinkenel. I'm the Deputy Director of the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy, and we're delighted to talk about emerging hybrid security threats to the U.S. and to the European Union today. It is my great honor to have Richard Fontaine with us today. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Center for New American Security. Previously, he has worked as a Foreign Policy Advisor to Senator John McCain, and he has also worked at the State Department for the National Security Council. Thank you very much, Richard, for being with us and for talking about this relevant topic today. Thanks for having me. It's great to uh, be with you. Thank you, Richard. Ever since the beginning of warfare, technology and technological development profoundly affected the means and strategies of conflict and the way in which they are carried out. Historically speaking, the technologically advanced party always had a decisive advantage over the actor with less developed capacities and capabilities. Thus, it has become abundantly clear that the outcome of current and future political rivalry on a global scale will heavily rely on achieving technological superiority. In the conventional domains of warfare, land, sea, air and space, we are witnessing the continuation of a modernization and a constant technological improvement. However, in the unconventional or hybrid domain, the technological acceleration and the level of aggression is unprecedented. The extreme increase of the amount as well as the intensity of cyber attacks and the disinformation campaigns since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis bear witness to this development. And especially at a time of global political rivalry, this development has implications for the national security of the United States and also for the European countries. This is the topic that we will cover today, and thank you very much again, Richard Fontaine, for being with us, elaborating on this very pressing issue of newly emerging technological and hybrid security threats. My first question to you would be, from the US perspective, how would you identify the actual threats and the threat perception that is deriving from new technological means? I think I'd probably characterize the tech threats in three ways. One is in the defense sphere and part, uh, at least since the end of the Cold War and, uh, and arguably for quite a while before the end of the Cold War, the United States had a fairly decisive advantage in, tech, in defense technology. Uh, the United States was the first to come up with stealth. The United States was the first to come up with um, with uh, yeah, missile, uh, you know, missile defense. The United States was the first to come up with GPS. The United States was the first to come up with precision guided munitions and things. And the United States still has an, a technological advantage over its adversaries and its potential adversaries, but that advantage has been shrinking over the years. So, you know, at one point, uh, the United States had a near monopoly on precision guided munitions. Now, those are pretty widely available. Uh, at, you know, we see even in recent 
uh, months, you know, Iranian drones uh, being used in uh, new ways to threaten uh, American deployments in the Middle East, um, the development of, you know, hypersonic uh, missiles and or hypersonic um, uh, capabilities and and other new technological capabilities by China, by Russia, et cetera. So the the defense gap, technological gap, has been shrinking between the United States and its potential adversaries. So I would say that's that's the threat in the defense space is from an American perspective. How do you how do you widen that back out so that we have the most advanced technological capabilities and can defend ourselves against these new technological capabilities um, by others? The second is on the on the economic side. And, you know, if you sort of stop the average American and you said, what is the tech threat today? They wouldn't say, well, hypersonics or or, uh, you know, dr- Iranian drones. They would say uh, ransomware and hacking uh, and theft of uh, personal data and identity and and all of that kind of thing through cyber means. And that's a very offense dominant kind of thing because the cost of carrying out those kinds of activities are low. Um, the actors often operate from uh, places where they know they're not going to be prosecuted or dealt with. So the instruments available to deal with that kind of thing are limited to some degree by the United States. And that's kind of an everyday economic and personal sort of threat. And then, you know, and then the other obvious category of threats is on the political side. I mean, it is the case now that the 2020 election in the United States, the 2016 election in the United States were both subject to significant attempted meddling uh, through uh, technological, through cyber means. Uh, And of course, the the French presidential election, it was the same thing. Arguably, the uh, referendum, depending on uh, how the evidence ultimately shakes out, may have been subject to the same thing. And, you know, it, it's it's likely that going forward, um, the combination of disinformation, hacking of sensitive information, attempts to disrupt the democratic practice in other countries is going to be the rule rather than the exception. And again, that's democratic, open democratic societies are a very large surface area to defend against. Uh, and so what precisely to do about these things is not exactly clear all the time. Uh, but what is clear is that it is a really acute threat uh, to our democracies. You have mentioned some very specific characteristics of these new threats that are actually very difficult to detect and to monitor. Actually, this whole nature of emerging threats is changing. Also, the accountability and the means that some adversaries are about to take in the present date and also in the future. For example, by disrupting, as you have mentioned, democratic processes such as the German or the French elections that are coming up here in Europe, which are also to be said to be targeted already by disinformation campaigns and influence operation within this hybrid domain. We have now somehow identified and tried to identify the perception, but in essence, my next question would be, what are the latest debates in the US administration and in the state security community regarding tackling such newly emerging threats? Well, 
again, I guess maybe to divide it into these three categories, there are different debates going on in different areas. So on the defense side, uh, one of the debates is about how the defense establishment in the United States and among our allies can absorb on a very fast basis new technology that has applications in the military sphere, but that originated in the commercial sphere. And if you think about, again, during the Cold War, there were a lot of technologies that were cooked up. They were sort of uh, invented in the defense sphere and then went into the commercial sphere. So GPS was a military application. Now I use it for Google Maps, uh, and you probably do too. Um, you know, uh, the internet itself was, you know, a DARPA, you know, kind of thing. And, and we're using it right now. Uh, you know, stealth never had commercial application, but it was a defense kind of thing. Um, and, and now it's just the reverse. So instead of things starting in the defense sphere and then spinning off into the commercial sphere, uh, some of the most cutting edge app, uh, technology with, cap with potential applications in the defense sphere starts in the commercial sphere. But, but how do you acquire that on a basis that is fast enough um, and particularly in, you know, a Silicon Valley or other ecosystem that is not always used to working with the defense establishment so that you can uh, bring in these new technological capabilities on a timeline that's actually going to be decisive. Because if you study the problem for five years before you decide to do something, then you've lost uh, the advantage that you otherwise would have had. It's not an easy thing to crack, but there's been a number of efforts to try to shorten the timeline, to have pilot projects for acquisition, to you know, have um, essentially Department of Defense, almost embassies out in Silicon Valley and in Boston, where the robotics cluster is up there, and in Austin, Texas, where there's a lot of technological uh, innovation going on. And so there's a lot of thinking about how to do this, but we're still a long way away from doing it as effectively as we need to. Um, you know, in the if you if you saw the in the economic sphere, it's getting into sort of the ransomware and things like that. If you saw the shutdown of the colonial uh, pipeline, uh, a few couple of months ago that, you know, suddenly uh, there were lines at the gas station near my house because they were running out of gas and they closed down a bunch of the gas stations all over the country, really, all because one pipeline was subject to one ransomware attack from one, uh, you know, group of actors. I mean, that that's not a very acceptable situation for... <laughs> Uh, a country to be involved in, particularly when it has such an information reliant uh, economy like ours does. And so the debate there is, well, okay, great. What do you do about it? Um, should companies pay ransomware? Well, it gets them out of their problem, but it also incentivizes further ransomware attacks down the line. Where does the government come down? What is the, what is the government's role uh, in something like this in the, in the colonial pipeline? There was back and forth between the government and the company. Uh, the company paid in Bitcoin. The government was able to get some of that back. Um, but, you know, what should the government's role be in all of this? And then it's pretty hard to defend against all of these things and, uh, through, you know, firewalls and multi-factor authentication and all the kind of normal cyber hygiene. Some things are going to get through. And so 
what do we do, if anything, on the offensive side? You know, the Department of Justice will indict people if they can figure out where they are or try to, well, that's great, but if they're never coming to the United States and they're protected by Russia or wherever, then it doesn't have a lot of meaning. So should we be in the business of offensive cyber operations or other offensive operations to deter future attacks down the line? So that's really where the debate is right now on that. And then um, and then the debate, actually, I, you know, in a funny way, I think the debate is not uh, as mature as it should be on the political influence interference side. In part, that's because it's gotten so bound up in our own domestic politics. I mean, we're still fighting over 2016 and who did what and and what was the react what was the re the reaction and and did it make a difference and all these other kinds of things but the reality is there are a lot uh, and if you look at a transatlantic context if you look at a lot of uh misbehavior that the transatlantic partners consider uh an unacceptable international event Russia's seizure of Crimea elicited transatlantic sanctions and a transatlantic response. Same thing when it moved into the Donbass. I mean, this, Ukraine is not an ally of ours, but we thought this rose to a level of, you know, conduct, right? Um, the Skirpal poisoning in Britain led to a coordinated transatlantic response, even though that was a targeting of a Russian on, you know, soil in Europe. Didn't directly implicate the United States, but we were involved in the response as were the rest of the Europeans. Even the Navalny poisoning was a Russian targeted by Russians in Russia. And we considered this, I think appropriately so, an international response. But, you know, meddling in the 2016 presidential election in the United States, just an American problem. The Americans have to figure out what to do. The French uh, presidential election, the meddling there is a French problem for the French to figure out. 2020 rolls around again, back to American problem. This is not an alliance problem. It's not seen as a transatlantic common response required problem or anything like that. And, and I think that's a real, I think that's a real problem. I think that's as long as countries have to uh, respond to these kinds of incidents wholly on their own, and it's seen essentially as a domestic uh, issue for them to manage or deal with as they would like, uh, I think we're going to see way more of this uh, than we, than we should. I think you're absolutely right. If at all, this is a democratic problem and democratic nations around the world are facing this problem and in one or the other way, therefore, we should certainly increase cooperation, information sharing and collaboration to tackle these problems. In the European Union, there is now a more common awareness about information security about election security and especially, as mentioned before, about the upcoming elections in Germany and France. So there is some sort of information sharing already going on between uh, these two countries and within the security community. They are preparing together and trying to defend democratic processes against hybrid influence campaigns against disinformation campaigns but I see where you're getting at and this issue that you have been raising is certainly a very interesting and important one also in Europe within the deterrence debate there is a similar development with regards to responding 
to cyber attacks. Sanctions have already been imposed on several individuals and also on organizations. So there is the freezing of accounts, uh, the freezing of financial assets, and restricting also people from entering the EU in terms of the sanction regime. And this is as the, at the moment as far as it goes. As I hear you, it is more or less the same within the US context, and I suppose the debate on really deploying offensive cyber capabilities is a very difficult debate, of course also against a legal background. So we are probably not going to dive into this issue in depth because it would exceed the current scope of our discussion. But when it comes back to the US administration and the current developments, where do you see the most ser serious shortcomings when it comes to addressing emerging hybrid security threats? Where is a lack of political will or strategy? Can you identify any lack uh, within this regard? Yeah, I think, well, there's the nuts and bolts of in the defense area acquiring uh, new technologies. And we talked a little bit about that before, but the difficulty associated with a very different model of uh, absorbing technology that is uh, developed in the private sector and uh, you know, in, in a non-defense way and absorbing that quickly enough so that it makes a, a difference. So that, that's one of the, I mean, that is a shortcoming we have not yet uh, solved. There's a lot of thinking about how to do that. There's some pilot projects and things like that. So I think we're making progress, but it's still an issue. Um, there's also, um, you know, a, kind of a, a, I guess a strategic level shortcoming in this, that gets at this this narrowing gap uh, between the United States and its uh, potential adversaries on hybrid security threats. So, um, you know, it is the case. It, it was the case, uh, you know, a number of years ago that people thought, well, China is not particularly innovative technologically. They can imitate a lot of things quite ably. They can steal intellectual property. They've got some, you know, military technology. That, that's, that's wrong. Uh, they have a very innovative uh, technology economy. Uh, their, uh, some of their defense technology is quite advanced. And if you think about the likeliest, God forbid, scenario, uh, where it was a US-China you know, China clash, they would have the advantages of geography uh, and economy in addition to technology. And so um, some of this is a, is a strategic concept or an operational concept problem about what the United States uh, does in these situations, um, what the kind of escalatory dynamics are uh, when dealing with, you know, uh, cyber attacks, for example, which is always a, a consideration. If you uh, don't react to a cyber attack, you absorb the damage and you incentivize it happening again. If you do respond to a cyber attack with cyber means, you have other potential problems that because of uh, co essentially collateral damage, including to yourself, uh, that that could entail. And then of course, there's the escalatory issue who stops, right? So some of these are 
we just don't have enough experience uh, and evidence so far to think about exactly how to deal with some of these escalatory dynamics, some of the collateral damage aspects of these things, and who has the lower sort of cost assessment of what it would take. I mean, the Russia, for example, uh, seems to see far lower costs in launching cyber attacks than, than, than does the United States, uh, which stands to reason. That makes it challenging for us to know exactly how to respond to these kinds of things. So I think there's an array. And then I guess the the the, mo the, the most pressing one at this very moment, it gets back to this, uh, this ransomware uh, question. So, you know, it has been the policy of the United States for many, many years not to pay ransoms to hostage takers, right? We'll do other things. We might send in commandos to try to rescue them. They ask friendly governments to intervene, we'll do, but, but we're not gonna pay ransoms. Uh, there are other countries, that, other governments that do pay ransoms. The United States policy is to not pay ransoms. Uh, sometimes that works. Uh, and sometimes that leaves the Americans sitting there uh, when you know someone from another country would have been released. So, it, but that's the policy. Is that the right policy on ransomware? Should the US government policy be to tell the pipeline company, don't pay the money? Well, they didn't do that. And I think, you know, it, it, I don't think they will or could really do that. But should that be the policy? Should the policy be we don't pay uh, off people? But if the price of that is your hospital IT system is shut down indefinitely, that's a pretty high price to pay. So what do you do? Um, and there's no easy answer to that. And I think the, the Biden administration is starting to think through this in a pretty disciplined way. Um, but I think there's still a way to go. Absolutely. I fully agree with you. I also believe the same applies to the European Union and to the challenges that we're facing here. Also, with regard to ransomware and cyber attacks in general, also the perception of the people that are in charge as well as the security community as a whole has to change into a new thinking into new sec security terms that suddenly, as the example that was brought up, uh, has, has shown. So for instance, the IT system of the hospital in this matter is now decisive for the national security, which probably was not the case 15 or 20 years ago. So this shift towards new threats also has to lead towards a shift in new threat perceptions from a governmental and a civilian point of view and level as well. I think a widened threat perception by the public, especially towards cyber means, is necessary in order to personally think about cyber hygiene on a personal, on an individual level. I just add one thing to this because I think I think you're right. And you know, you have to, when you're thinking about national security threats, you have to assign general probabilities to the likelihood, right? And, um, and then you think about, well, what would the potential damage from a particular threat be? So, you know, a nuclear threat is very unlikely, but the damage is so high, we need to think about it, we need to prepare for it. Um, you know, it, it is possible that Russia moves into NATO, a NATO country with tank columns and the United States and its NATO allies have to deploy into that area and fight them off. 
And we prepare for that. Uh, we should be prepared for that. But the likelihood of that is pretty low. Not zero, but pretty low. The likelihood that uh, our democratic way of life and, and elections and, and democratic practice will be meddled with uh, by cyber means um, that, you know, ransomware will have the threat of shutting down things that we find critical to our way of life, hospitals, banks, whatever. That's 100 percent because it's happening right now. And uh, yet, you know, when you think of in the national security community, quite often when you think of threats or alliances, it's much more in this narrow. How do you beat back the tank column in Europe as opposed to how do you defend the French elections? How do we defend the American elections? What about the, you know, what about the, the Irish uh, health system that is using pen and paper because they won't pay the ransom, right? Um, so, so that's the kind of mental shift, I think, that we need to get to that allies and partners are increasingly uh, defending a, a different kind of surface area. It's not just a territorial surface area. It's a, a social and economic and technological surface area. Yes, definitely. And if you would allow me to try and summarize it into one sentence, I believe we don't only have to modernize our technological means, but also modernize our minds to become more aware and therefore to become more capable of defending ourselves against such emerging threats. It is not only a means of technological development, but also of mental exercises to imagine such new threats, which are not imaginatory at all, but are very real also at this very moment. This brings me to our last question for today regarding the EU-US cooperation that you have mentioned also in the NATO context before. How can or should any cooperation or partnership be improved when it comes to accomplishing better security awareness and an enhanced security apparatus in order to become better equipped against such emerging threats and security challenges. What should a corporation like this look like? Well, um, at the sort of highest level, uh, my uh, colleague Jared Cohen and I have written a proposal for what we call a T12, which would be a new grouping of techno democracies, you know, strong democracies uh, infused by liberal values uh, that have, you know, big economies and, and innovative technolog technological sectors. Uh, there is no current forum or grouping or mechanism by which uh, they can harmonize their approaches to any of the issues that we were talking, we've talked about today. Uh, and so we've proposed the creation of one of these, maybe on the starting on the margins of the OECD ministerial this fall, for example, or, or something similar. One could quibble with who's a member of this, what does the exact structure look like? Fine. I think the point is technology is not anymore like just another functional issue in international relations. It's not like, you know, we have common concerns about ocean trash and we have common concerns about, you know, whatever, uh, you know, lemur 
reproduction or, you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm being a little facetious, but, 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 you know, technology is a defining national characteristic these days. And these issues are not confined to our own borders, quite obviously. And yet there's insufficient levels of democratic coordination and harmonization. So what you're seeing already this year are sort of a proliferation of new forums. The US-EU Technology Council has been established. The Quad Technology Council among the United States, Australia, India, and Japan. US, South Korea Technology Council, and all of these are good, uh, but you do risk a little bit of a proliferation of forums. And I think having one with everyone that you would want to have together uh, around the table, uh, trying to both come up with common assessments of what the problems are, and then to the greatest degree possible, common solutions for how to deal with them is really something that <laughs> frankly should have happened already. Uh, but but should happen now. So, um, th you know, th that's one thing. I would also just say in terms of ES US EU um, uh, in particular, you know, one of the things on the defense technology side is that the Department of Defense has made a lot of effort, as I was saying before, to reach out to Silicon Valley, to other places around the United States that have, you know, startups and, and new technology sort of on offer as a way to be able to absorb that technology as quickly as possible. None of those efforts are in foreign countries, which to me seems like a major uh, missed opportunity. And, and even within the EU, I think there's insufficient drawing on technology from one side of the, of the Atlantic or the other. And in fact, from an American point of view, I, I'm a little worried that we're going backwards because we're building in Buy America provisions and you know, we're in a little bit of a protectionist uh, state of mind now. Uh, given the size and, and advanced nature of both the, the US and EU economies, we should be drawing on the best technology for the best applications from either side of the Atlantic for whatever the national problem is we're trying to solve rather than, you know, keep that sort of, you know, locked away for only our own, uh, our own providers. Uh, and so I, I think there's the think of the US and EU more as a common technological market from which, uh, you know, like-minded governments can draw the best technology applications when possible to me is the way to go, but we're not, we're not there today. Yes, I would also fully agree with that statement. You have brought up some very profound recommendations for both the US administration and the European stakeholders on how to improve the shortcomings that we have discussed. There was also a lot of food for thought, and we certainly discussed a lot of actions that have to be taken in order to improve the current situation and to be better equipped both technologically and mentally, as we've said before, in order to counter these emerging hybrid threats. Thank you, Richard van Dane, very much for this very elaborate discussion and for the points that you have raised. I believe that they were indeed very insightful and at the same time also a little bit provocative, just the right mixture that our listeners would like to hear. Thank you very much for being with us today and thank you as well for the support and the cooperation of the US Embassy in Vienna. I'm very much looking forward, Richard, to welcoming you to Austria soon again.
I can't wait. And uh, thanks for having me. And next time in Vienna.